This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a very special guest on the podcast. It is Stephen Pressfield. So if you're not familiar with Stephen Pressfield, he is the author of a lot of different historical fiction, nonfiction, and screenplays, some of which he would be very, very familiar with. The first book he ever wrote was The Legend of Bagger Vance. So for a lot of you guys, you know that because you know of the movie that it was later turned into, directed by Robert Redford, and also starred Will Smith, Charlize Theron, and Matt Damon. But his second book, book. His second book might be the real reason why most of you guys know who he is because his second book was Gates of Fire, which is about the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. And this book is on our list of the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. And so we absolutely love this book. Uh, you know, when you're making a list of 100 books, you got to think about all the different criteria that go into that because you want to have a nice cross section of different types of books. And guys, there's a lot of historical fiction out there. There's a lot of military fiction out there, but that is is at the tippy top of that list of books. So it is an It's just an absolute treat that we were able to get him on the show. But some other notable books that he has is The War of Art, which if you listen to the Joe Rogan experience, he talks about The War of Art fairly often. He actually appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience a while back. I think it was uh, two studios ago, and they've talked about that book quite a bit because Joe Rogan has actually purchased that book and given it to a lot of people. But he's also written Turning Pro, Do the Work, The Warrior Ethos, Tides of War, and about a dozen other ones. But guys, this was such an interesting chat with this guy because this is a guy that's obviously very mindful about the things that he says and the things that he writes, and he's written a ton of books that are applicable to people and then a lot of other stuff that's just there to entertain. But in this interview, we get into to, you know, whenever he knew the legend of Bagger Vance was going to turn into a movie and, and, and what that experience was like. And he gives a kind of an ex- a surprising answer as to what he thought of the movie once he first saw it. But this is a guy that, that didn't just become a writer at an early age and just, he kind of set his path. He had some real lumps that he had to overcome. And this is a guy that by his own admission lives kind of a warrior lifestyle, but not, not maybe in the typical sense of if, you know, you're in the military now, or used to be in the military, what you would normally think of as a warrior. But this is a man that, that, leads a lifestyle that is indicative of what a warrior poet would actually be. I think that's the best way to describe it. Had a tremendous time chatting with him. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Stephen Pressfield, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Kyle. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And my guys are going to be so excited to hear this interview. I've told a few guys here and there, and they're they're just super excited to hear what you have to say. So let's just go ahead and launch in. And I do want to kind of go back to the very beginning because a lot of guys that listen to this podcast, they're either retired military or they're currently serving in our United States Armed Forces. Uh, but in the mid-1960s, going back all the way uh, to the early parts of your life, long before your career as an author, you joined the Marine Corps. So I, I'm just curious, what drew you specifically to the United States military? Well, this might this might not disappoint your your audience here, Kyle. But I was dodging the draft, okay. And, uh, and uh, I wanted to get into a reserve unit, you know, so that I wouldn't have to go to Vietnam. 
And uh, so I joined the Marine Corps. That's how I wound up in there. It was like the last thing in the world that I ever thought I would do. But oddly enough, it's in, in some crazy way, it has shaped my life more than probably anything else. Well, so give me a little bit more on that. So in what ways, uh, I know we're just kind of getting started here, but obviously the military has a tremendous effect on a lot of people, but how, what ways do you feel like it, it shaped you and molded you as a person? Um, you know, I think uh, largely, I still think of myself uh, as, uh, I mean, particularly as a writer, I approach it, you know, this might sound a little over the top, but I approach it as a warrior. You know, and I try to, uh, you know, my day is kind of structured in uh, in the same way that you would structure a day in the military. I mean, I'm up at the crack of dawn. I start off, you know, with physical stuff, you know, PT, doing that kind of thing. And I have a, you know, my whole sort of concept of being a writer or how to manage the day is very much a uh, self-discipline uh, concept, you know, I have a plan of the day and I stick to it and I, you know, do all that sort of stuff. Um, the, the, the only difference I think from being in the military is in the military, your, your daily structure and your overall structure is imposed upon you from without, right? Right. By whoever's in, in charge of you. Whereas in, in the real world, the out, you know, the civilian world, it's self-discipline and self-motivation and self-reinforcement. Well, that's a great, great thing because a lot of the guys that we encourage now, even if you're outside the military, you don't want to become, you know, a slacker. You don't want to become a slob and you kind of have to have that internal discipline that someone else isn't going to give you. But again, early in your life, uh, really early in your career, I've, I've read that you had just a ton of different jobs. I mean, you were, you know, everything from a bartender to, you know, a school teacher, fruit picker, truck driver. Uh, you even have talked about how you were homeless for a stretch, but you always seemingly had this goal in this North star. And that was, that you were going to be a writer and an author. And so can you kind of give our listeners an idea of what that time period of your life was like? And did you have a lot of times where maybe you doubted if you were going to be able to be the author that you always thought you could be? Absolutely. I mean, that whole period, it's, I mean, I could talk about it for a long period of time, but it was maybe about a six or seven year period where I was just really completely lost in terms of, um, uh, of, of my goal of being a writer. I had basically just given it up. I sort of tried. I had an initial period when I, when I set out to write a book and that thing kind of crashed. I blew, I blew it up. You know, my concept of resistance with a capital R from the war of art, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. Sure. Resistance utterly defeated me. And, uh, I sort of blew my life up and I was, um, basically, you know, I sort of fell out of the bottom of the middle class and, uh, and, and got onto a sort of a, um, an odyssey, a kind of an on-the-road odyssey that was um, uh, a lot of really uh, low-rent jobs. One kind of followed another. And when I, look, when, I, uh, when I look back on it, I think it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me. Um, but uh, at the time, I, re I really... I felt like I had sort of fallen out of the bottom of everything and I never thought I would get back. I was just, I was just struggling just to get from, you know, one day to the next. Um, not that there weren't a bunch of good times in there too. There were, but uh, you know, you talk about a North star. I mean, I always had that dream and I always, that was, 
That was what I wanted to do, but I definitely felt through those years that it was never going to happen. Um, and then finally, I sort of got my feet on dry land again, and I kind of built my uh, confidence back like one brick at a time. But during that period, um, no, I definitely was not um, in charge of anything or really felt that I was going to come out of it at all. Yeah. And that's the thing that's always the encouragement I give to guys to feel like maybe they're stuck in the milieu of their day or their life or whatever. It's that you're, you're putting in the reps, right? And you're, you're still kind of pointing yourself in a generalized direction because, you know, if, if you're traveling somewhere and you're trying to go in a, on an exact heading, if you get a little bit off base one way or the other, you can still correct back to, to the original plan, to the original platform. But the thing is, is for you, you did work your way out of that. And we'll certainly get more into the resistance here in just a second, but you hit an absolute home run with your very first book. So your first book, a lot of uh, our listeners are familiar with it. It was released in 1996, The Legend of Bagger Vance. And the reason why a lot of people know about it is because either they read the book or they watched the movie, you know, Will Smith, Charlize Theron, Matt Damon. I mean, you really knocked it out of the park from the very, very beginning. But I'm interested in the story about how you came up with the idea to even write that book because it's such a unique storyline. So what what is the what was kind of the impetus behind even starting and going into a story like that? Ah, it's a great question, Kyle. Um, actually, uh, when when I started on that book, I had I was I had had a career as a screenwriter for about ten years, and you know I was out in Los Angeles, which is where I am now, and um, I had kind of a B level or C level uh, screenwriting career, and um, all of a sudden, well, I'll give you the longer version of this thing, the. Uh, the legend of Bagger Vance is really stolen from, the structure is stolen from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, um, which is always a favorite book of mine. And every time that I read it, I thought, this is such a great structure here. I've got to do something with this. You know, shall I give you a little bit of the structure of it? You know, a, a one minute version of it? Yeah, go for it. Um, the Bhagavad Gita starts with uh, two armies lined up across from each other in the ancient days, warrior armies with chariots, spears, uh, lances, uh, horses, the whole thing. And we're with the, we the readers are with the great warrior Arjuna. And on the, as he looks across at the enemies on the other side, he recognizes kinsmen and teachers and peoples that he knows. And, and on the spot, he says, he refuses to fight. He says, this is not, no good is going to come out of this. Uh, I don't want to fight. He lays down his weapons, refuses to fight. And he turns and he turns to his charioteer for advice. And his charioteer turns out to be Krishna. In other words, God in human form. And so God sort of reads Arjuna, the riot act. And the rest of the story, the rest of the Bhagavad Gita is kind of the great warrior Arjuna receiving spiritual instruction from Krishna. And it's all about uh, concepts like previous lives, karma, duality, non-duality. It's very Eastern and it's very deep. So I just thought one day, I just thought, why don't I steal that structure? And instead of uh, a, uh, a troubled warrior, it's a golf champion. And instead of his charioteer, it's his caddy. So the I just that idea sort of came to me as a book rather than a movie. And I remember having a meeting with my agent and telling him that I wanted to do this as a book. 
And he basically fired me on the spot. <laughs> and, and in all seriousness, because he said, I've spent, you know, 10 years trying to get your movie career going. And now you want to go off and write a book. Nobody's going to buy this book. It's the dumbest idea I ever heard. And forget about it and get out of here. So that was how uh, that <laughs> The Legend of Agravance came to be. That's such an interesting story. And then again, you got to see it on the silver screen, but, but really quickly, you know, what was it like seeing your movie for the first time? Uh, well, I was, <laughs> I was actually quite disappointed in the movie. And okay. I would not recommend the movie to anybody either. I would recommend the book. Um, but you know, that's pretty much, I think a really common phenomenon for anybody that writes a book or writes a screenplay and then sees it on the screen. It almost always, you know, once a director takes over, it becomes their project. Robert Redford was the director on that and he made it his movie and it wasn't my movie. You know, it wasn't what I, what I thought it would be. So it was great to see a movie. Um, but it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't what I had in mind. And I'm sure that's what every writer, if you, any, any writer you that's had a movie made will say the same thing. Right, guys. Well, you heard it here first. Avoid the movie, but buy the book and read the book. <laughs> but we'll go ahead and, and transition on to one of your, your most notable works, and that's The War of Art, uh, released in 2002. And so really a large through point of that, that book is helping people, especially those that consider themselves artists, defeat what you mentioned earlier, what you call the resistance. So for those of us that have not read the book, for those of our listeners that haven't read it, what is the resistance? If, uh, you know, when I first started thinking about this, I thought about it only from a writer's point of view. But as I got letters back and feedback, I could see that this is like totally universal across all fields. But let me just take it from the writer's point of view. We're not on video now, Kyle, but if you could see me, I'm sitting in front of my laptop and I have a keyboard right in front of me. And when I sit down to confront the blank screen or anybody, you roll a piece of paper into a typewriter and it's a blank piece of, pa piece of paper, radiating off of that blank screen is this negative, repulsive force that is trying to stop you from doing your job, doing your work, you know? And it will tell you, the voice in your head will say something like this. Who do you think you are sitting down to write this thing that you have in mind? You're a loser. You're a bum. You're too old. You're too young. You're too fat. You're too thin. You never went to college. You had too much college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, every idea you've had has been done before and done better than that and so on and so forth. So in other words, resistance is this force of nature that stops us or opposes us Anytime we want to move from a lower level to a higher level. Another classic thing is if you join a gym and you commit, oh, I'm going to really commit to a course of fitness or whatever it is, right? The first day comes and it's impossible to get out of bed, right? That's the, you know, how many people have bought ab machines or a treadmill? Right. Right. They, you know, and or another thing is to give up a vice, to give up drinking, to give up drugs, to give up just to, to go on a diet. Anytime you try to move from a lower level to a higher level, morally, spiritually, creatively, ethically, anything like that, this force that I call resistance with a capital R will, will, will um, contest you. And the form it will take will be a voice in your head. And, and the large component of this voice will be fear. 
And, uh, you know, I say at the very start of The War of Art that there's a secret that writers know that wannabe writers don't know. And the secret is this. It's not the writing that's hard. It's the sitting down to write. And what makes that hard is resistance, this force that will try to stop you. So I would say to make it the short version, I'm blathering on here, Kyle, I know. But the, the real skill that a writer or an artist has or that learns that you teach yourself is not the skill of putting together stories or anything like that. It's just the ability to sit down every day and work your shit. That's, that's the secret. Well, and th that's the thing is, is most people treat it like it's a secret, right? Like, you know, people will ask me, Hey, Kyle, how can I get in shape? Or how can I do this or that? It's like, put your shoes on and go to the gym or, or walk out into nature and go throw some logs or rocks around. Like this isn't a hard thing, but you're right. That resistance is, is right there in front of you. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of guys know your name because of your appearance on the Joe Rogan experience back in 2013. And he's talked about you a lot since then. And he always talks about uh, the war of art and how many copies of the book he's given away. And he's, he's literally one of the most famous people in the world of entertainment. And he, he gives a lot of credit to your book to helping him break through that. But, you know, I've heard a lot of people, say that this book, the, the War of Art, has lit a fire under them. And I mean, the thing is, Stephen, is in a world full of you know self-help books, you know, the, the shelves are full of self-help books. Why do you think your philosophy that you shared in this book has had such a lasting impact with people? That's a great question. You know, sometimes you don't, you just don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, all, a lot of self-help books will talk about, give put you on a program, you know, do this, do that, do the other thing. And I think all the War of Art did was it just gave a name to the enemy. You know, it just called it resistance. And, and, and um, so that when we're, when you're hit by that, when you have those waves of, uh, of uh, self-doubt or fear or, or uh, procrastination or complacency or stuff like that, at least now it has a name. And you can say to yourself, all I got to do is defeat that. And each of us will defeat it in a different way. You know, there are different ways of doing it. Um, that's my best guess. I don't know, but I'm, I'm glad that it helped people. And um, yeah, uh, I'm just glad it helped. Yeah, it's certainly a lasting work. And even to transition out, there will be people that would be surprised that know you from the War of Art. Transitioning into a lot of war novels, you've written a lot of historical ancient warfare novels. Uh, a lot of our listeners have read and listened to a lot of those, but you've done a lot of writing and reading on ancient warfare. You know, why do you think that you're so interested in that? Because that's a very specific type of a category. Why does that appeal to you so much? That's another great question, Kyle. You're smoking hot here today. I'm doing What's my right? best. I'm doing my best. Okay. Good. Um, you know, it's it, that's a really good question. I'm going to answer it in kind of maybe a crazy way. And and uh, I believe in previous lives. You know, I can't say that I, I you know that like I remember any. But what's sort of interesting to me is that I was drawn to this one specific era, ancient Greece, Sparta, Athens, Alexander the Great, the Macedonians. But I was, I'm not drawn so much to Rome or, you know, an adjacent area. And I think, it, it, you know, when I would read the, the ancient works, you know, Thucydides, Xenophon, Plato, all those things from that era, they just resonated to me right away. You know, I kind of understood it. I got it. I read them over and over. And, um, you know, when actually Gates of Fire was a book that came for me after 
Legend of Bagger Vance. And before I wrote it, I had no conception in the world that I would write anything in that ancient era or that military thing. It wasn't like something I dreamed of since I was a kid. It just sort of came out of nowhere. I just had to do a book two. I didn't know what the hell it was going to be. And I just kind of did that one book, Gates of Fire, and then I did like five more. Um, and it just is very congenial to me for whatever. I only stopped and kind of moved into the modern world a little bit just because I thought, you know, I don't want to repeat myself forever and forever and forever. But, um, I, uh, you know, that, that era is just very congenial to me. I just feel right at home in it. Well, I think if you did continue forever, forever, and forever, that guys would really enjoy it because Gates of Fire, which you released, that was your second book back in 1998. That is one of the 100 books. It's on our list. It's 100 books that every modern Christian man should read. We have a list, and that that is one of the ones that is on there. And it's for a lot of guys, you know, it's a, a thing that they didn't really know about before maybe the movie 300 came out or something, but it's the story of the Spartans, the battle of the 300 warriors against the Persians at Thermopylae. And, um, Again, it's just a history that most people hadn't heard of. Uh, it's not really something that's covered in elementary school. So I guess for you, how did you hear about the, the Battle of Thermopylae and why did you think that that was a great story to turn into such what ended up being an amazing book? Um, like I say, I'm a, I'm a reader of the ancient texts. I love it, you know, and uh, the, the one book uh, that really covers that is Herodotus, The Histories, in which he talks about the all of the wars between Greeks and Persians. And uh, he goes into pretty good detail about Thermopylae. And just when I was reading it, reading it, I just thought, this is a freaking great story, you know? I mean, what what could be better than like an army of 2 million people and the Greeks and 300 Spartans and about 4,000 allies, and they fight it out in this, you know, one area about the size of a basketball court. Um, you know, it's, it's just such a great story. In fact, what I, when it, here's the voice of resistance going back to that. As I started on, on the book on Gates of Fire, I said to myself, nobody's going to be interested in this. You know, it's a, it's a, just, just like you said, Kyle, nobody's ever heard of this battle. They can't spell it. They can't pronounce it. It's, right. it's not, you know, Americans only like to read about Americans. They're not going to want to read about this. And that's, again, is a kind of the voice of resistance. So, but I thought, you know, this is really a dumb idea to write this book, to spend two years writing it. But I was just, you know, seized by the story. I just had to, had to do it. And, um, but the real, sort of the real central aspect of this, of, of what really appealed to me about that battle. Sorry if I'm waxing long-winded No, here. this is great. This is great. Um, you know, in, in why, I asked myself, you know, why is Thermopylae different from other battles? And I really believe it absolutely is. The only parallel to me is maybe the Alamo. But in any other battle you can think of, each side goes into it thinking either that they're going to win or that they're at least going to survive. You know, if they lose, they'll get away somehow. But that battle, from the point of view of the 300 Spartans, you know, they were all chosen as fathers of living sons because they were sent there to die. They were sent there to stand and die, and they knew it was going to happen from the start. And that's what, to me, made it such an amazing story, you know, that they went there and they absolutely did what they said they were going to do. And the famous, you know, epitaph uh, that Simonides wrote of that, go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, 
that here, obedient to their laws, we lie. That really sort of said it all to me, the idea of obedient to their laws, that they set out to do something. You know, this was the this was what, you know, what their aspiration was, what their morals, what their ethical code said they had to do, die, and they did it. And so that to me was why it made such a great story. Well, and the great thing about reading that book, Stephen, is it, it no matter what, it kind of makes you put yourself in their shoes, even though this is thousands of years later. And, you know, we live in a very cushy and comfortable marshmallow world now. But just thinking about, do you have the internal constitution to do something like that? Would, would you do that for your people, uh, regardless of what the consequences were going to be? And before we move off of Gates of Fire and move on to some of your other works, um, I do want to definitely get your thoughts on the graphic novel 300 and the movie a- adaptation of that graphic graphic novel back in 2006, because that is where I heard about the Battle of Thermopylae the first time. That's whenever, you know, the History Channel and National Geographic and everybody had to, you know, get get their stuff together to kind of teach everybody about what happened historically. But from your perspective as an artist, what did you think of the graphic novel and the movie adaptation? Well, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you sort of the behind the scenes Hollywood story of that for whatever it's worth it. Um, they, have a, they have a term in Hollywood called development. And what that is, is like uh, a project starts from maybe an original book or original graphic novel. And, you know, a producer or an actor or a director, somebody gets involved and they, they, they are quote unquote developing it. And what they mean by that is they're trying to get a script written that they like. They're trying to cast an actor or actors, or they're, they're trying to get a budget together. They're trying to, you know, it's a whole long process. It can take years. And what happened was that Gates of Fire and the graphic novel 300 were sort of competing with each other behind the scenes, you know, and it went on for a couple of years where there was sort of two parallel railroad trains going down the tracks. And it was a contest. Whoever got the financing first was going to be the movie that got made. And then whichever that was, was going to kill the other one, right? Because there wasn't going to be two movies on the same subject. And so it just turned out that Zack Snyder was the director of 300 and uh, that they got their act together before Gates of Fire could. So they kind of won the contest. And now what do I think about it? Um, it certainly was an entirely different way of treating the same historical material, you know, whereas Gates of Fire kind of took it really seriously and really tried to, um, uh, like, put you, the contemporary viewer or reader, in that world and really understand it in depth, you know, what Spartan society was about, what the whole underlying culture was, etc. 300 went for a, you know, a, a really unique graphic look and a really unique, and, a, and the graphic novel was that like that too. And I can't knock it. It was a big hit, um, but it was a whole completely different way of of attacking that material and and how and how seriously you wanted to take it and whether you wanted to do it in a in a kind of a comic booky form or if you wanted to do it in a more realistic form. 
Sure. Well, I appreciate the uh, the peek behind the curtain there, a little bit of inside baseball. That's very interesting to, to know about. And really just to transition on into another work that I think has a lot of uh, the same gusto and the same energy is the Warrior Ethos from 2011. Obviously, this isn't a novel. This is a book that you wrote that a lot of our guys have read. It's it's anecdotes from ancient war and, and the ancient world. And the thing about it is you've, you've given this book away to a lot of people. I read somewhere, or, or maybe it was even on your Instagram where you talked about you gave like 18,000 copies of this book uh, to soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. I know that some of uh, some of our military universities, they, they will use this book a lot. But could you just maybe just sum up what the warrior ethos is and what you mean by that? Um, well, let me, t- I'll, I'll sort of uh, tell you a little bit of the backstory on this one too, Kyle. Uh, we, my, my partner, I, uh, Sean Coyne and I are partners in a, a little publishing company called Black Irish. And, um, we had this idea around that time when Iraq and Afghanistan wars were going full bore that, um, a lot of our men and women over there on the, you know, downrange were, um, and I, I, this came from emails that I would get and stuff like that. We're struggling with kind of disillusionment and that, you know, they joined because they had a kind of a concept of what uh, warrior honor was or what service was. And when they got over into these wars where there's a lot of gray areas and it's not by no means like, you know, any sort of glorious thing that people were sort of saying to themselves, you know, what have I got myself into and how do I keep my spirits up? And so we thought maybe we should write just a short little thing and give it away to kind of keep to kind of help people connect to the sort of the ancient way, the way it used to be when honor was for real. So um, I uh, rather than um, having it sort of come from me, like me shooting my mouth off about what I think the warrior ethos was, I, I, I sort of pulled stories from the Spartans, from Alexander the Great, from the Romans, from the Athenians, and so forth. And um, they all were sort of trying to to be a little bit inspirational and to back, to go, to kind of flashback to the days when honor was for real. And then I, I also tried to define the warrior ethos myself, which is probably what you wanted me to, to answer here, Kyle. But um, there are certain warrior virtues I believe that, um, and that I, in fighting my own kind of inner war in my just my regular life, that I I use those myself, and I'm sure you do too, and I'm sure all your readers do too, your listeners do too. And some of those virtues, I mean, the obvious one is courage, but there are a lot of other things like patience, selflessness, um, the willing embracing of adversity. Um, that that comprise kind of the warrior the warrior ethos and um the other aspect of the warrior ethos that was very important to me and i really wanted to get out there was the moral aspect of it that um the aspect of of if if an enemy surrenders to you you take care of that enemy you know you don't brutalize them or go, you know, like for, I think one of the reasons we we all hated ISIS so much and that whole thing was to us, it seemed like they had no ethic at all, you know, right. just massacre people, you know. Now, I can understand that from their point of view. It's asymmetrical warfare, et cetera, et cetera. But I really wanted to, in the warrior ethos, 
get those the, the the ethical and the moral elements of it, and particularly, you know, Alexander the Great and the Spartans and so on and so forth. They did a lot of bad things, but their their hearts were in the right place in a lot of cases. And I tried to emphasize those aspects. Well, I think you did a, a fantastic job. And for those of you listening that maybe haven't read any of your, your work before, this is a great place to start because it's a short book. It, it's very accessible and it kind of gives you an idea of what your ethos is as you, you talk about the warrior. You, you certainly talk about it in your novels, but you even talked about it from the beginning, how you treat your life like a warrior would. And I think that dovetails nicely into something that you're currently doing and that you just released not that long ago, which is the warrior archetype. And so this is a new video series that you're putting on your website and on, on YouTube, and this will span you know several months. But you basically said that this series will look at the idea of what a warrior is in ancient times and modern times. So you're going to kind of be bridging that gap for a lot of people. And so the first episode was just kind of introducing the warrior archetype. And then you've released, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, you've released episode two and three, which was talking about the women of Sparta and the, the types of things that were going on in those cultures. But what can we, I guess, kind of give us the impetus as to why you wanted to do this video series and what we can expect with future episodes? Um, it's another great question, Kyle. Thanks for that. Uh, I, you know, it, it, the series kind of started just with the, the fact that we're in this kind of COVID situation here today, you know, where a lot of people are um, have time, more time on their hands than, uh, than they expected they would have and are kind of looking a little bit for education or for inspiration or for something like that. And I thought, you know, how could I contribute here? What do I, what do I know? Right. And so um, I thought, well, I know about this. I know about the ancient world. I know about that whole concept. So this series is going to go on for, I don't know, all the way into the next year. I'm going to, I'm probably going to do 50 little, you know, five minute, seven minute videos. And what I really want to do, we were talking before about resistance with a capital R and and the whole concept of the inner war, the war against our own selves. And I'm, I'm going to take this series kind of starting with the ancient Spartans. That's why you say like my first two episodes were about Spartan women. I'm starting with the ancient Spartans, who to me were sort of the um, supreme warrior culture. You know, short, you know, maybe the samurai, maybe the Zulu, the Maasai might be on the same level with them but who, where the entire society was a warrior culture, the women, the children, everybody. And starting there in what would you call, what I would think of as kind of the pure warrior culture in terms of uh, both fighting an external enemy and the internal enemy. And then I'm going to just try and take it through history and, and introduce other elements and bring it down to the inner war that you and I are fighting today. You know, when we wake up in the morning, every every morning, we have to, you know, refocus, get it together, keep our keep the the uh, dark stuff at bay and keep our focus on what we're trying to do. And a lot of times we use those same warrior virtues to keep ourselves together. We, Like I said at the start, we switch from externally imposed discipline to self-discipline and externally offered reinforcement to self-reinforcement and externally offered motivation, you know, a sergeant or somebody kicking our ass to our own self-motivation. And so that's, I'm going to try and take it all the way down to that at, at the end, uh, to, to the inner war that we all are fighting today. 
And guys, if that sounds interesting to you, which it should, make sure that you go ahead and follow and subscribe to his channel there on YouTube. But there was one comment that you made in episode one. Um, and the comment was that you you say that the two of your most popular books don't really have crossover audiences. So people that read Gates of Fire don't read The War of Art and vice versa. Why do you think that is? You know, that's a, that's a great question because I've... You know, it's very frustrating to me because I think of these two books. One is about the external war. One is about the inner war. You know, and to me, they're the same book. You know, it's it's the same thing. Um, but there's a tremendous resistance. I don't know why. I've been trying to figure this out for 20 years. Why uh, people who like the one just don't want to cross over to the other. I think people who read The War of Art are largely, I think, aspiring writers, aspiring artists, and so on and so forth. And they, uh, they don't want to read about, you know, some ancient battles or battles that they've never heard of. And I think by the same token, somebody that might read about, read Gates of Fire about the Spartans or Alexander the Great or whatever, they might, oh, I love these stories. They're great. I don't want to read something about, you know, the inner world and the inner war. You know, that's not up my street, you know. But in any event, it's a real, it's a real issue. And uh, I, it frustrates me. Not just because I want to sell books, but because I think each one of those books would appeal to the people who don't think it's going to appeal to them. Well, and the other thing that I think if I were to venture a guess, which you kind of alluded to it, it's guys that read Gates of Fire, they don't want to you know, seem like they want to be a wussy artist and read The War of Art. People <laughs> that read, read The War of Art don't want to seem probably like true, they want to be but then if you're reading The War of Art and that appeals to your sensibilities, you might think that, you know, Gates of Fire is kind of knuckle dragging, brutish, you know, writing yeah, or something like true. that. Yeah, it's like th this must be a different Stephen Pressfield type of a thing. But the thing that I tell my audience all the time, because, again, our audience, as I told you off air, is a little bit more rough and tumble, rougher around the edges. I always try to drive home the point of nuance with people to where it's like, I, I don't care how much you can deadlift or how good you can shoot or all those different things. Because if you can't be a tender warrior with your wife, then then you're not really doing it right. If you're not nuanced in your discussions about large topics, you know, whether it's spiritual topics or religion or finance or government or or whatever it's like then you basically are able to tackle one thing if with this ministry we talk about spiritual mental and physical resilience all the time so i got a lot of guys that you know maybe gates of fire type people that they got the physical on lock they can run forever and they can lift all the weights and they can do all the things and they can do jujitsu and wrestling but maybe they haven't read a book in years and i tell them all the time it's like no 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 that's not acceptable You've got to be able to be resilient in all these different areas. And it's not acceptable to just be a bookworm either. If you're a bookworm, but you can't sprint to, sprint to the end of the parking lot to save your life or someone else's life, then you're worthless to me as well. And so I think that might be some of the motivation for a lot of people as to why they don't do that crossover. Um, but one thing I want to transition into, because this is a, a really a through point for a lot of your writings and a lot of the times that you talk about, you do either talk about it directly or, you know, anecdotally, you talk about the muse, right? So give our listeners a short synopsis of what you mean or what people normally mean when, if they're unfamiliar with the concept of the muse. Ah, okay. It's another great question, Kyle. You're smoking hot today. I'm doing my best just for you, just for you, Steve. <laughs> um, you know, I have found, like I've written now, I think like 20 books, something like that. And the question that people ask is, well, where do you get your ideas? You know, how do you know what the next book is going to be? And that is a real, it's a real mystery. 
You know, you read stories about songwriters. They're driving along the freeway and all of a sudden the song will come into their head and they have to like screech to the side of the freeway, you know, and hum a few bars into a tape recorder or something before they get home. So that's really the muse. It's sort of a real mystery where ideas come from and why you're inspired by to do a certain thing. Um, like I said, when, uh, when the idea for Gates of Fire came to me, even though I thought this will never sell, I am wasting two years of my life, I was utterly seized by it. And I just had to do it. And the same thing with really basically everything, every book that I've done. always It always surprises me. Like the idea sometimes people say, well, I can, I'll have a five-year plan. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do for the next five years. That never works at all for me because when when the time comes and you're looking for that next idea and you have no clue, you just don't know where it's going to come from or, or what it will be. And I usually, the sort of the, the criterion that I apply for new ideas, what idea scares me the most to write as my next project? But I do believe in ancient Greece, the muses were nine sisters. They were goddesses, daughters of Zeus and Nemosyne. Nemosyne means memory. And each goddess was, her job was to inspire artists. And there was a muse of dance and a muse of music and a muse of epic poetry and so on and so forth. So the concept of the muse is this mysterious force that you can't name, you can't command, but that will inspire you and guide you to what you're supposed to do next in your life. Not just writing books or anything like that, but what's the next phase of your life? And um, I'm absolutely a believer in that. If somebody would ask me how I, um, how I define myself, what my occupation is, I would say I'm a servant of the muse. And I just, whatever she tells me to do, I do. And anybody who has written or had done anything, songwriting or singing, or they, you're familiar with that experience. I'm sure you've had it too, Kyle. Sure. Where you're you're in the middle of doing your work, you're in the middle of doing writing, let's say, and you get a run, you're like you're in a zone, and you get a run of four or five pages, you don't even remember writing them, right? And when you look back at them, you go, wow, this is good. Did I do that? How could I do that, right? And that's the muse. It's some mysterious thing that we can't measure and we can't weigh and we can't you know, put on a scale or take a photo of it. But that really is, in my opinion, the real core of our being. And um, so thanks for asking that question. I hope I didn't ramble on too long. No, that's great because you kind of uh, went into the area of like a flow state. So a lot of times, you know, I'll have people ask me about my podcast, like, how, you know, how do you, you know, sit in your studio by yourself and, and talk for 30 or 45 minutes about a complicated subject? And I'm like, guys, if you knew the preparation level that I give for some episodes, because some episodes I will spend months working on and others, I'll walk into my studio with basically five bullet points on a, on a sheet of paper. And then I just flow and I just go. And then you do, you get to the end of it and you're like, I just talked for 45 minutes and my notes I could have scratched on the palm of my hand. How did that happen? Where did that come from? But I thought this was interesting. And so I want to get your comment on this. In 2013, uh, you had a blog post on your website and it was entitled, How Resistance Proves the Existence of God. And so there was one quote that I, that I pulled out here that I want to get your thoughts on. It was this, I refuse to believe that we humans are alone and bereft in the meaningless cosmos. If we were, there would be no such phenomenon as resistance. 
What possible purpose could resistance serve in a universe devoid of meaning? Hell exists, yes, but heaven does too. So in light of what you just said, and in light of some of the things that you've experienced, again, that was a blog from seven years ago, does it seem possible or reasonable to you that the muse is actually God? Yes, it does. Absolutely. In fact, it's, I think, I don't know. I mean, if we look at Greek mythology, there's always Zeus, who's the father of the muses. So the muses are sort of at least a channel for God. I absolutely believe that. And I think that, um, you know, we, I believe that we all, all of us, everybody listening, you, me, we all have a destiny. We all came into this world with a, uh, you know, I like to say that um, as a writer, that before you even start to write your first book, you have a body of work. You have a bookshelf of books and they, uh, that you will write. And they're kind of there already. They exist already, but they only exist in potential. And it's your job, the writer on the material plane, to bring those things into material being. And, and so to me... That absolutely has been the experience of my life, you know, absolutely. And so I asked myself, how could that happen if there weren't some greater consciousness, some greater intelligence, call it God, call it the all, call it whatever you want, There's that there is, there is meaning in this life. And when I said why resistance proves the why resistance proves the existence of God is resistance is like the opposite of that. Resistance is what's trying to stop you from doing that. And, and resistance is absolutely real, as we all know, from buying our uh, treadmills and our ab rollers and bringing them home, right? And if it's real and it is real, then its opposite has to be real too, which is the muse which equals God. One, I think one thing that a lot of Christians hear, kind of a, a typical Christian saying is, God has a plan for your life. And, you know, if you're a serious Christian, you, you don't take that as just kind of a cute statement. You, you believe that, that God has a specific plan for your life. So I think that really dovetails nicely with what you were saying about the bookshelf. Like I for a lot of guys, you look at your bookshelf and it's empty, but you're writing the story of your life every single day. And I, I one thing I, I tell people as a kind of a thought experiment is to always look at your life as if it's five chapters of a book. Because when you're like 12, the five chapters of your book, you know, it's like, well, I was born, that's chapter one. And then I learned how to not poop my pants anymore. That was chapter two. And then you kind of move on. But when you're 70, your, your five chapters include a whole lot more things. And, and there's these kind of larger through points and larger topics. And so, so for the listeners of this podcast and for me, you know, we believe that Jesus was a real man that lived in, in the Middle East and died on a Roman cross and was raised three days later. And that's the, the God that we believe in. And so whenever I feel the muse, I feel like it's God directly talking to me and the resistance that I feel, I feel like it's coming from a dark spiritual force that we call Satan. And so for you, would, would you say that when you're talking about, you know, call it whatever you want, good or evil or, or darkness or light or whatever anybody's talking right now, do you feel it, that it's that specific, that it's like God, you know, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Satan, or is it more of a generic type of God versus, you know, good versus, versus evil? How would you kind of, you know, construct that? I mean, I don't know if I put faces on this sort of thing. You know, I'm myself, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jew. And I would also say that 
you know, a lot of the ideas that I'm talking about here go across the board, go through Hinduism, go through Buddhism, go through, you know, it isn't just a, an entirely a Christian concept. But um, in like in Jewish mysticism, there is uh, the concept of the Yetzer Hara. Have you, are, are you familiar with that, Kyle? I'm not. I'm not. It's but it comes from I wish I knew the verse in the Bible. It comes from Genesis. And I think the. It, it's the quote, um, I think it's the one where God is about to send the flood and says that, uh, you know, I, I, I regret making the human race at all, right? That they, they're, all their thoughts are turning toward evil all the time. And in, in, in Kabbalistic Jewish mysticism, that phrase, the Yetzer Hara, is that. It's, that's the force that uh, it's a, the quote is a turning toward evil. And um, my rabbi, Rabbi Finley, ex-Marine, and a wonderful guy, he said to me, the Yetzer Hara is what you would call resistance, Steve. So I, I see it kind of as, I, I see it, if, if we were on the video now, uh, I'm, I'm holding one hand level, horizontal at a kind of a low level. That's the material plane that you and I are on right now. With phys- We're in a physical body, right? And above that, I'm going to put another plane. And that is what you might call heaven or what you might call whatever the next highest level. In Christian terms, it's it's um, the kingdom of heaven. It's where G- it's Jesus, where Jesus got to, right? But in and we on the lower level are striving to reach that higher level, and the higher level is reaching down to us, trying to pull us up to, to itself. You know, in Jewish mysticism, they say that above every blade of grass is an angel saying, Grow, grow, right? But in between those two levels is this force of resistance, this negative force whether you call it Satan, uh, whatever it is. It might as well be Satan for my money. I mean, it is absolutely evil. Its whole intent is to stop us from moving to the next higher level, from contacting, you know, whatever we call it, the divine. So um, I guess I see it more in sort of um, not necessarily uh, having a human face to it. It's more of a, a force of nature. Well, hey, Stephen, the last section of the podcast today of the interview is it's a segment I like to do with guys that are just like you. And that's what would you say to someone that said? So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that and then I'm going to end the sentence with with something about a random topic that is still applicable to you. But here's the thing. You only get 30 seconds to answer. Okay, so this is not, you know, a time for going into a lot of different sidebars. This is just the meat and potatoes of the answer. What would you say to someone that said blank? So you up for it? Okay. All right, let's do it. First one here. What would you say to someone that said, I just can't get into reading fiction? Well, you should, you know, uh, kick yourself in the ass and start doing it. Because (laughs) fiction in many ways is nothing replaces it because it goes to the deepest level of, uh, of the human being that you're telling the story about. You know, if it's pure history, you only can see that academic history. You can only see that person from the outside. But fiction takes you completely inside. And some of the greatest writers are fiction writers. So get over it and read something. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, as an artist, I have a hard time getting out of my own way? Um, 
that, that's I would say another thing. You better kick your own ass and get out of your own way. But the main thing to do is, I think, is to surrender to the material. Whatever it is, whatever idea seizes you, commit yourself to it, surrender yourself to it, and just get into it, and you will get out of your own way. Good deal. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, the resistance is too strong for me to overcome? That's bullshit. Excuse me. I don't know if we're supposed to say that on here. It's, it's okay. No one's, no one's going to be too offended by that. <laughs> resistance. Here's the interesting thing about resistance. Resistance comes in response to a dream that we have. Like if you have a business you want to start or a, a book you want to write or a movie you want to make, resistance comes after that. Once you have the idea, resistance immediately follows like the shadow of something, of a tree or something like that. So whatever resistance you feel, big as it is, guaranteed your dream is just as big or bigger because that's a law of physics. So you have got the power, whatever, however much you think big resistance is, you have the power to overcome it. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, Talent doesn't matter. Uh, I don't think it really does matter to a certain extent. I'm living proof of that. I don't have talent worth a shit. Uh, I think hard work is far, far, far more important than talent. But, of course, we all do have talent. When we follow our joy, whatever it is, if you want to build a motorcycle in your garage, if you want to you know, refurbish a park in your neighborhood, you've got the talent to do that. But hard work, 10 times more important. I certainly appreciate that sentiment. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, some people just aren't creative? Not true. Everybody is creative. It just forms a, it just might take a different form. Sometimes when we think of creative, quote unquote, we think, oh, it's being a dancer, it's being a movie maker, it's being a writer. Not true. There are a million, million ways to be creative, including just being a father or a mother or a mentor to somebody or just living a crazy life like Dennis Rodman, being a Hayoka, being this, you know, backward walking guy. You know, there are a million ways to be creative and we all are. Well, that is the first time Dennis Rodman has been mentioned on this podcast. So thanks for breaking through that glass ceiling for us. Next one here. <laughs> what would you say to someone that said, ambition isn't a curse, it's a driving force? You're absolutely right. Couldn't be more. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you think about an acorn, you put that acorn in the ground Potentially, it's a gigantic oak. And what makes it that oak? There's a drive in that acorn. God put it in there, whatever you want to call it, to become this mighty oak. And whenever we feel ambition, I think that's a, that's a gift from God and we got to cling to it. I don't mean ambition where you're, you know, destroying everybody in your path, scorched earth, you know, competition but just living a dream, living a dream, having a vision and following it. All right. Two more left here. What would you say to someone that said Stephen Pressfield should write a novel about the spiritual battle between heavenly forces and demonic forces? Um, <laughs> I think in many ways, that's what I've been doing all along. Okay. <laughs> like I say, you know, you never know what the muse is going to assign you, you know, a year from now that may come absolutely true. All right. Well, the last one of the day, what would you say to someone that said Gates of Fire is the best war novel of all time? <laughs> I would say I'm glad you think that. Uh, I certainly think that it's it's worth a read. That's for sure. 
All right. And we certainly think so as well. That's one. Uh, that's why it's on our list of books to read. But hey, Stephen, we have gone through a lot of material here. We've covered a lot of ground, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, nothing except that uh, let's do this again, Kyle. We'll stay in touch. And like I say, I have this new book coming in March and I would love to to uh, get it to you. And we'll talk about that again, if it's okay with you. It is certainly okay with me and I cannot wait. But Stephen Pressfield, thanks so much for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Kyle. All the best to you and to your listeners. Well, there you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the interview I had with Stephen Pressfield as much as I did. It was such a fun conversation. We talked a lot off air as well about just the stuff he has coming up, the stuff in the pipeline, the book that he has coming out before too long. We're definitely going to get him back on here to talk about that, and we can't wait to share that information with you. Before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry, and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So to help you with that, I've got some links for you today. The first link is to Stephen Pressfield's website. So that's a great center point for all of his content and all the things that you can go out and buy, like the majority of his books. And then we've got uh, four YouTube episodes for you here. So it's episodes one, two, three, and four of the Warrior Archetype series. That was a series he talked about that he's going to have dozens and dozens of episodes. And guys, by the time this episode comes out, this podcast episode comes out, there will be more of these there, but at least that'll get you started. But that is Introducing the Warrior Archetype. That's episode one. Episode two is The Women of Sparta, part one. Episode three is the women of Sparta part two. And then episode four is add a step to it. Then I've also got another YouTube link for you. And this was to his appearance on the Joe Rogan experience all the way back on episode 405. And so it was him and Aubrey Marcus. So that's an interesting listen for those of you guys. I've got the blog that we made reference to. So how resistance proves the existence of God. And then we've got a link to his Instagram page. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us five stars and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, at your team, at your business, whatever, hit me up via email, info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Our website is www dot undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the Version Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.